Well, today we look at the cross, and the cross is maybe the most misunderstood symbol in the world. I remember hearing a story of a, uh, a man who took his daughter to a jewelry store. He wanted to buy her a cross necklace, and uh, the jeweler asked, do you want the one with the little man on it or the one without the little man on it, right? Uh, uh, for some, the cross is a fashion symbol. For others, it's a symbol of a movement or a rebellion or a revolution. The Apostle Paul even points this out. He says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. And so uh, what we're inviting you this week to do is for the next six days is to walk to the cross, to come to the cross, to see what it is all about as we go from today all the way to Friday night when we meet together, uh, to see it all again and to experience it in a powerful way. Uh, but, but at the cross, we see what it is that Jesus did for us. We, we understand, we try to understand, what we're trying to do today is understand why God would allow this. But most importantly, what I want you to know is this, is as we draw near to God at the cross, the promise of James comes true that God draws near to us. So let me give you a big idea for today because I think it's important for us to understand this week that the cross made our life with Jesus possible. It's the cross that makes our life with Jesus possible. And today we're gonna try to understand that a little bit better. See, God came into the world, suffered and died on the cross in order to save us. And it is the ultimate proof of his love for us. God puts on display his love for us. He shows you what you mean to him. And because of the cross, we also now know this, that sin, death, evil, they're passing away. They're shadows in this world. And so today we're going to walk up that hill. We're going to go and we're going to see what happened. But, but as you do this, I, I just want to warn you, sometimes it can be, it, it can be difficult. Uh, you may feel tempted to turn away. Uh, but I want to encourage you instead to try to consider what it is that God was willing to do for you so that you could have life with him now and forever. And so let's turn together to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, we're going to be in verses 21 to 41. And today, today in the church is known as Palm Sunday. We saw this in Mark 11 uh, that uh, we've been looking at this week, uh, this last week of Jesus' life. And so think of it this way. This was the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem this week uh, as he's coming in. But Jesus knew very well as he was coming in, even as they were announcing him as, as this king and Messiah, he knew exactly where this week was headed. He knew uh, he was headed to the cross. He had told his disciples three times to this point, we've seen in Mark, that he knew this was coming. And so just to understand a little from last week, we saw a meal that he had experienced on the last night of his life with his disciples. After the meal, they went out to a garden to pray. And we understand in some ways the depth and power of the cross because as Jesus took three of his friends to go ask them to pray with him, Jesus began to pray with, with such depth that it said that his sweat became like drops of blood. He was overwhelmed um, by the moment. In fact, he prayed, Father, if there's any other way, but not my will, yours be done. And then as the prayer ended, the, uh, his deceiver came, his, his betrayer uh, came, Judas came, he, he betrayed him with a kiss. The, the mob grabbed him, took him, uh, took him to the Jewish ruling council to be tried. 
uh, they wanted him to die, so they took him to Pilate. And there was kind of this flip-flopping going back between the Jewish rulers and the Roman uh, rulers uh, of who was going to take responsibility for this. And finally, uh, Pilate, who uh, you, you see there seems to be some reluctancy in wanting to be the one responsible for Jesus' death, wants to get a barometer of where the crowd is going to be on this. And his job is to try to keep the peace in this. And so he takes this notorious thug, Barabbas, who's been leading a rebellion, and he brings Jesus, and he brings them both out, and he lets the crowd decide. And the crowd, you, know, you remember at this point, Jesus' followers, have de- they, they've deserted him, And the crowd stirred up by the religious leaders start to cry out to free Barabbas. And Pilate says to them, what am I supposed to do with Jesus? And they begin to cry, crucify, crucify. Now, the Jews hated crucifixion. It was was despicable to to them what, what the Romans would do. And yet this is what they're asking for. And so we begin to see all this take place. And as all these things are taking place, uh, Uh, He decides to have him crucified. He's flogged. He's taken. And so we pick up the story uh, here in verse 21. It says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription on the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And when they, uh, with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, You who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now we know the mocking began much earlier. The religious leaders during the trial, the uh, Pilate, Herod, uh, the Roman guards. But, but as we see the mocking in, in this part of the story, we see it's, it's focused on an idea. He can't even save himself. They're, they're crying out, save yourself if you can. He saved others. He can't even save himself. And and, and I was trying to think, I mean, try to imagine this. If you're a follower of Jesus at this point, what are you feeling? So whether you're part of that, this little crowd uh, that has, uh, that is there in the distance watching, or you're one of the disciples who has uh, deserted, who's hiding in a corner, who can only imagine the, the torture of what he's going through. But watching everything you've experienced, aren't you thinking to yourself, wait a second, you were the one who stood up in that boat. You, you, you spoke to wind and waves and you calmed the sea. We watched you turn a, a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish into a, a banquet for thousands and thousands of people. We saw you uh, give sight to the blind and, and, and allow the lame to walk. We even watched you raise the dead back to life. How is this happening? How is it? You have the power, Jesus. How is this happening? 
And as his follower, I, I, I try to think for me, if I could put myself in the story, at what point would I have wanted to, to join in the crowd? At what point would I have begged Jesus, please, Jesus, make it stop. Save yourself. You don't have to do this. Would it have been in the garden when I watched them club him and, and throw the bag over his head and take him away? Would it have been when I, I was trying to listen in to the, this trial in which the, all the lies and accusations they began to mock him and punch him and, and, and ask him, prophesy, who hit you? Would it have been when he was, they decided to crucify him and they sent him out to be flogged? This is a, a, a torture in and of itself where they took him and they, they tied him to a post and they uh, began to whip him 39 times. 40, they believe, would cause death. So 39 times he was whipped with a whip at the end, the different ends of it. There would be metal balls and, and, and glass and bone. And the idea was to, to, to mutilate you. Deep bruises, lung bruises, uh, the tearing of his flesh, the tearing of muscles. At what point would you say, please, Jesus, stop. Don't do this any longer. Save yourself. Would it have been when they took him out and you saw him falling under the weight of that bar? He was, he was uh, so much, so traumatized by that moment, he couldn't even carry the 250 cross beam. They had to grab Simon to be able to do it. And they took him out, they laid him, they stretched him across. If they wanted to prolong death, they would just tie his hands up, but they wanted his death to come quickly, and so they drove these, these five-inch spikes through each of his, his arms and then one into each of, it, of his feet. And when they raised it up and they pounced it into that hole, wouldn't you want to scream, please, Jesus, stop this. Please, save yourself. Don't go through this any longer. Every breath that he would take, he would have to, to, to push up on those nails in his feet and pull up on the nails in his arms just to get a shallow breath and try to survive. At what point, as his follower, would you have said, enough, Jesus, save yourself? Here's the first thing I want you to see this morning, that it was the love of Jesus that held him on the cross. See, those that were passing by were screaming, save yourself. But the focus of Jesus was on saving them. It was on saving you. It was on saving me. He stayed there because of his love for us. But you have to think, what about the father? I mean, can you imagine as a parent watching someone do this to your kid? What's your response? I'll kill you. And yet we know this. We know that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, had from the very beginning to his people made a covenant. They had made a contract with his people saying that they would, God would never give up on us. God would never give up on us. And Jesus in that last supper held up a cup and said, I will see this through to the very end. I will not give up on you. We will drink again in the kingdom of my father. And you think of every failure of the people of God 
God never gave up. Every time they deserted him for other gods, he never gave up. Every time that they did something that certainly would give him reason, he never gave up. Max Lucado in his book, Six Hours, One Friday, then talks about Jesus coming to the world. He says, when he became flesh and was victim of an assassination attempt, before he was two years old, he didn't give up. When the people from his own hometown tried to push him over a cliff, he didn't give up. When his brothers ridiculed him, he didn't give up. When he was accused of blaspheming God by people who didn't fear God, he didn't give up. When Peter worshipped him at the supper and cursed him at the fire, he didn't give up. And when people spat in his face, he didn't spit back. When the bystanders slapped him, he didn't slap them. And when a whip ripped his sides, he didn't turn and command the awaiting angels to stuff that whip down the soldier's throat. God didn't give up. He never gives up on us. Jesus described this love the best this way. He said that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. He said he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Every mocking person yelled, save yourself. Come down from there. But I want you to know something. It was not a lack of power. It was not the Roman spikes. It was his love that held him there. His love for us held him there. The passage goes on. It says, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether or not Elijah has come, will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in, in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when, when he was in Galilee, they followed him, ministered to him, and there were many, also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now Mark notes something uh, significant happened. It says that at the sixth hour, darkness came over the land. The sixth hour is noon. And so from noon to three, the brightest time in the whole day when the sun is at its peak, he says a supernatural darkness came over the whole land. 
The darkness they understood to be a sign of mourning, of judgment, of the death of someone great. And it's interesting, the leaders were asking Jesus for a sign. I guarantee you this was not the sign they were hoping for. And in this moment, we, we sense something significant is happening. Jesus calls out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the, 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 the Romans are saying, oh, maybe he's calling down one of the, the prophets. Let's see what happens. But if you're a Jewish leader standing there, this is an eerie moment. Because what Jesus is doing is he is quoting Psalm 22. This is the beginning line of Psalm 22. But as you get into Psalm 22, he be, you, you read a psalm that was written hundreds of years ago begins to describe this amazing moment where Jesus says, I'm poor, uh, the, the psalm says, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This is, and they see it in the sky, the darkest hour of Jesus' life. See, at this moment, all of your sin, all of my sin, all the sin of those before, all our kids' sin, all the sins of those who will come, all those sins were placed upon Jesus. And it's so overwhelming, he literally screams. Here's the second thing I want you to see today is that Jesus was forsaken by God so you and I wouldn't have to be. See, the judgment that should have fallen on us fell on him instead. And when he cries out, my God, my God, this is, this is intimate language, right? You, I, I might say to my daughter, my Becca, my Becca, right? This is intimate language, After the service, one of you comes to me and says, wow, today was terrible. I don't ever want to see you or this church ever again. I, I'll be heartbroken, but I'll, I'll make it. I'll live on. But if my wife comes to me later today and says, I don't ever want to see you again. I don't ever want to hear from you again. I would lose all feeling in my legs. I would crumble to the ground, a weeping mess. The longer the love the deeper the love, the greater the torment of its loss. And this forsakenness, this loss between the Father and the Son who have loved each other from all eternity, this love that was infinitely long and absolutely perfect, this, for the first time, Jesus was losing it. This was our fate. And Jesus' death is the only way to to alter it. And this is why Jesus goes to the cross. He falls into complete darkness for which we were headed. He dies the death we should have died so that we can be saved from this judgment and instead live in the light and the presence of God. Now you and I understand this just simply that wrongdoing demands a penalty. 
And according to God, if we break his, his standards, we are not just breaking standards, we're, we're sinning against him, his person. And, and the, the, the penalty for that is to be separated from God. And we see the horror of this moment, right? We understand in some ways why it's described as weeping and gnashing, this, this sense of deep loss and regret. But God does something quite amazing. He doesn't set aside his justice. God's love and creative, creativity, it, it has no limits, does it? God demands justice and God pays for it himself. God covers the payment himself. 2 Corinthians 5 describes it this way, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was forsaken so that you and I wouldn't have to be. And that, that deserves our worship, our honor. I was listening to a story from Auschwitz and there was a man uh, named Maximilian Kolbe was a Franciscan priest and he was just a little different. He continued, and despite all the horrors that were going through, he would share his bunk, his meals, he would serve the prisoners any way he could. And he came in, in February of 1941 and uh, in July there was a, a prison escape and they had a rule in Auschwitz that anyone who escaped, there would be 10 prisoners who'd be executed. And so they called out randomly the names of 10 different individuals and when they came to the 10th one, the man began to weep. He began to cry out, my, my wife, my children, and he just began to sob. And, and in the ranks, they began to kind of hear a stirring, and so the guards picked up their rifles, and it was, it was uh, cold. And he kind of made his way to the front, and they said that it's amazing that he just didn't get shot. But he got his way to the front, and he asked if he could speak to the commander. When he got to the commander, he said, look, take me instead. I'm old. I'm feeble. He's young. He'll be of more use to you. And they said they don't know why, but for some reason, the commander agreed. Request granted. Now, the prisoners were not allowed to speak, and so the man whose life was was spared said, I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned and could hardly grasp what was going on, the immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live, and someone else willingly, voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some sort of dream, he thought. Kolb was the last of the ten to die. In fact, he, he never uh, died. What they did is they took the ten, they put them in a room, no food, no water, until they basically uh, uh, died by starvation. But Kolb never died until they uh, injected acid into his veins and the date of that was August 14th 1941 the man who he saved eventually uh, survived the horrors of Auschwitz he was released he made it back to his hometown but every year August 14th he would go back to Auschwitz to pay tribute to the man who had saved his life he had carved a plaque with his own hands a tribute to Kolb and put it in his backyard reminding of the man who died so that he could live. And this is our story, isn't it? Jesus, innocent, takes the place of someone. He pays the penalty of death and wrongdoing. He takes the place of another on the cross. It's our place. Jesus takes it. He dies for us. 
He's forsaken so that we would not have to be. And so Mark tells us there are a couple responses to this. One is there's a guard, a centurion who's watching this. He would have been in charge of the the whole execution. He'd seen, who knows, how many people he had killed and how many people he had killed through crucifixion. But you can only imagine how hardened this man had been. But somehow watching this death was different. And as he watches Jesus to the very end, he is the first to, to, to say it. Surely this man is the Son of God. When you look at the cross, who do you see up there? Who is that to you? But I love also the, the testimony of, of the women. There's a group of women. They've been following him all the way to, from Jerusalem. But it says there's a group of women. They were looking on from a distance. And it says that when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And then you see there's also many other women who came. But, but don't, you, don't you want that to be your testimony? You followed him. You ministered to him. You ministered for him. And you were there all the way. Till the very end, you were there. I want that to be my testimony. And so I want to ask you as our series comes to an end, do you have life with Jesus? Do you know him? Are you going to follow him? Are you going to allow him to pay the debt of your sin, to offer you the forgiveness, the work that he did on the cross? Are you willing to come with him, to turn, to stop the way you're going, and to come with him? Jesus says to us, come, come with me. Stop going your way and come with me. Live life with me, and I will give you my life now and forever. Come with me. Follow me. Tomorrow is uh, Jackie Robinson Day. And all through baseball, every player will wear Jackie's signature 42. Now, we're a baseball family and we're a Dodger family, so it was important to, to teach my boys about Jackie Robinson. And so we read books and we watched movies. We even had a poster of Jackie up in their room uh, to remind us uh, uh, the, uh, his famous quote, a life is not important except the impact it has on other lives. And I wanted the boys to understand the oppression that Jackie had faced, the injustices he fought, and the example that he set. I I wanted them to understand the equality he helped to create. And so because of that, it was was kind of fun. Uh, My son Trevor actually wore the number 42 most of his Little League days. In fact, he was the only kid in Little League at the time wearing his pants pulled all the way up to the knees and and he's got the stirrup socks. And he he wanted to be old school is what he said. But Jackie's life for my boys and for us, it's a model. His legacy means a lot to us. And I wanted my boys to learn how to honor the sacrifices that he had made. But what was interesting when I began to think about this and think about tomorrow, I realized that when I first started coming to this church, I treated Jesus a lot like Jackie Robinson. He was this person from history. I didn't know the story very well. I had only been coming a little while. 
but, but he was someone I respected, someone that I wanted to model my life after, someone whose teachings I thought should be an important part of my life too and I should learn. The story was so fascinating to me, not having grown up in church. But here's what I learned, that when I started coming here, the people here did not treat Jesus like he was someone from the past. They treated him like he was someone with us right now. And I didn't totally get it until the first time I sat in a communion. We were up, it was the first camp I went to as a winter camp. And me and my neighborhood friends, we were basically like the wedding crashers. We were just there to party with the, the, the church people. We, we didn't feel like we really belonged. But we sat in there. I didn't participate. I didn't know really what was happening. But myself, my friends, we all came away with the same thing. What was going on in there? Something's in that room. Actually, we started to understand that it was someone was in the room. And so when the service was over, our, our life group leader, uh, we said, you need to explain that to us. And he said, what? Why do we all feel like there's someone in the room with us? What's, and it was across the, the group of about five or six of us. What was going on in there? And he just kind of smiled and he said, we'll get there, guys. A couple months later, I experienced it for myself. Uh, church gave me a scholarship. I went to summer camp. The cross was explained again. But this time, as we sang a final song, I heard the whisper in my heart. Bill, will you follow me? And in the midst of it, it was powerful because somehow my, my little 14-year-old brain was putting it together that this God who had created this beautiful forest, this whole world, was paying attention to me. And he was saying, Bill, I know you. Bill, I love you. And I want you to come with me, even if none of your friends will. Will you follow me? And we sang a final song, and in that final song, I made a commitment. I made a decision. I was going to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And I will tell you that everything changed that day. That day, I began to experience life with Jesus. I want the same for us. What would it be like if this church began to think about, instead of thinking Jesus as our example, we, we, we lived life with him? Not learning about him, but learning from him. What if instead of seeing Jesus as a martyr, we saw him as a savior? What if instead of seeing him as a great example, we made him our Lord, our King, and followed him? We joined him. We served with him. We, we, we changed the world with him. Man, that's my dream. That's my prayer for us. And so we're gonna pray. And then we're going to sing one final song. And I hope you, if you've never heard that whisper before, hear it today. That you would say, Jesus, I want to follow you and minister to you. And I want to be with you all the way. But as we sing this last song, think about his love. Think about how you matter to him. Remember that he will not ever give up on you. And the cross is proof of that. So let's pray.
take a moment and just see that in your mind's eye. See the cross.